Matthew chapter 5, this morning in God's Word, Matthew chapter 5, we come back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you're just joining with us, you have come right at the end of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, familiar territory in our New Testaments, and yet profound truths here for us. We've spent many weeks now walking through each one of these, and sad to say today we will conclude them. At least that's the plan. Lord willing, we will conclude the Beatitudes today and then move forward at a little faster clip in the days and weeks ahead. Would you join me and pause with me just one moment as we pray to set our hearts in order for what we're about to do? We're doing serious work here, and I want to set my heart in line before the Lord. Father, thank you for this privilege. This is a privilege to preach. and This is a privilege to study. We do not study a book, an ancient book. We study a living word. We do not study alone or of our own wisdom. We study under the direction of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that our time in your word this morning, for the remainder of these moments that are left, would be valuable for eternity's sake. It would bear eternal fruit that would grant eternal reward that would turn glory back to you. And we understand that the only way that our time of study here will bring eternal glory to your name is if it is accomplished with humility, with hearts that are dependent upon your spirit, if it is met with your grace so that we might apply these truths to our lives and then live in stark reality, in the harsh reality of what we encounter today in the Beatitudes. Then, as fruit is born and lives are changed, and as the good news of the gospel goes forth from our lips and our lives, you will receive the glory. That's our desire for this time. We've come from different circumstances. We've all had different mornings. Some of us are distracted. Some are in trial and suffering. Some are indifferent. Some are hardened to the truth. And yet we have confidence that your word will accomplish your purpose and that your spirit is powerful and works mightily through it. And so we ask that this, this hour, this time, would be for the praise and the glory of your name and your name alone. And we pray it because of the sacrifice and the substitution of the perfect lamb, the gospel himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, and let's begin reading in verse 1 just to refresh our memory. We've refreshed every week. We should be refreshed in our memory, but I'm going to do it again. I figure we've started strong. We're going to end strong. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain. And when he sat down, as the rabbis did, and the people stood, his disciples came to him. They came near. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted.
for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This will be the focus of our time this morning, verses 10 through 12. For those of you who have developed an appetite for one verse at a time, I apologize, we're going back to multiple verses And we will unleash God's truth three verses at a time today in our study. All right? Beginning in verse 10, and we'll go all the way through verse 12. By way of review, the Beatitudes are not an illogical, unorganized teaching by our Lord Jesus Christ. They are extremely organized, they are intentional, and they have a distinct purpose in their transmission to us. Matthew puts this teaching at the very front of the ministry of Christ to set the table to his Jewish audience that the kingdom of heaven was the kingdom of the ministry of Christ and that their Messiah had been rejected. They had missed the Messiah. And if they would turn and embrace the principles of the kingdom, the heart realities of the kingdom in repentance and faith, they would be granted citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes work logically. If you haven't interacted with them recently, the poor in spirit are those who mourn. Poverty inside, an understanding that there is no merit in us by nature. There is no merit before God. There is no means for us to generate God's favor. Will lead us to an accurate view of sin, which will bring mourning internally for sin in our own lives and for sin in the lives of those around us and in the world at large. We will be the ones who see sin for what it is, and we will mourn for that as an appropriate emotional response. Because we've seen our own destitution and we see sin properly, our response will be meekness in our attitude towards others, because we see God for who He is, and in light of God we see ourselves accurately in comparison. Or in contrast, meekness is the result. Power under control. Not self-seeking, but self-abasing. And the centerpiece of the Beatitudes comes in verse 6. Because verse 6 is the marker between the, the first three and the last four. That the Beatitudes mark out the kingdom citizens as those who hunger. Who are desperate for righteousness in their lives. They are starving and they are dehydrated. For righteousness. This is the quality of the kingdom. It's seen then in the fruit of their lives, in their mercy towards others, in the purity that they pursue in heart, their peacemaking activity, not in a superficial sense or a cheap peace, but in a deep and lasting and biblical peace. And now finally, it'll be seen in this final characteristic that the blessing of the kingdom, the internal happiness of the kingdom, is promised exclusively, exclusively to those who are persecuted. Each one of these Beatitudes has been countercultural. We talked about that last week, I believe. 
the world would say, blessed are those who are rich in their own eyes, those who have a high self-esteem, not the poor in spirit, who see their worthlessness before a holy God. The world would say, blessed are those who laugh, not mourn, those who have the best time, who are the most relaxed in this life. Verse 5, the world would say, blessed are the ones who drive after their own agenda, who pursue their own glory, who roll over anybody who's weak and in the way to accomplish what they want. Blessed are those who grab life by the horns and go for it. Blessed are those who promote themselves, not the meek. Blessed are those who know no hunger and no thirst and who live life to the fullest for their own glory and their own way. Blessed are those who step on the little man to get to the next level, who are marked out by not mercy, but a compassionless drive. Blessed are those who are filthy in heart. If you want to know happiness, taste sin at every level. The world says, blessed are those who don't make peace, but those who fight hard enough for their own agenda that they win. Finally, the world certainly does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted, but rather, blessed is the man who gets along with the most people, who knows no trouble in life, who has had a good life. So these are countercultural. The Beatitudes stand as a contrast to the worldview that is promoted in every way around us. And we come now to the conclusion, and we are left with the same countercultural message the same pointed discussion as we have had every single week through these Beatitudes in this final, this final statement of our Lord in this section. Last week we looked at kingdom peacemaking as a way of life that pursues true peace both personally and for the sake of others. And this week we're going to look at the likely result for the peacemaker. What will be the likely result For the one who is poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness with everything in their being, who is marked out by mercy and an internal merciful heart, who is pure and drives after purity in heart and is a peacemaker. What will be the natural result? What should be expected for these people who are kingdom citizens? Well... Certainly, blessing should be expected because that's the promise of this section. Certainly, the promises are plentiful in response to each one of these statements. They'll gain the kingdom of heaven. They'll be comforted. They'll inherit the earth. They'll be satisfied. They're going to receive mercy in the future. They're going to see God for who he is. And they're going to be called out by God as sons of God and by those who have like character. This final beatitude gives us a picture of what is to be expected in this life, in the present tense, for those who find themselves in the kingdom of heaven, the happiest people on earth, in the happiest place on earth. It is these people who will be blessed, and they will be blessed in persecution. Persecution is more widespread, believe it or not, today than it has ever been in recorded history. And that's hard, isn't it, for us to think of? We're in a very comfortable situation. 
sitting in a little town in a free country, enjoying worship together, singing songs loudly, praying together without fear of government intrusion into our worship hour. And it is difficult for us to think that the world knows more persecution of Christians today than it has ever known. Now granted, there have been isolated events that have been vicious and the numbers have been staggering towards Christians, but most of those have been localized. Today, persecution is more widespread. It covers more area than it has ever covered. The message of Christianity is more unpopular today than it has ever been. The pure message of the gospel, the pure word as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, flies in the face of our postmodern culture. It flies in the face of everything that our world stands for. And because of that, persecution is at a heightened level today. I'd be so bold as to say that that's probably not the case for your life or my life, though, this week past or for this week future. We are generally not persecuted. In fact, the United States because of its lack of persecution, also harbors a soft and cheap Christianity. If to declare the name of Christ as the way of our lives, to be a part of what Acts called the way and the name, was to be persecuted, was to face potential death like the covenanters, the reformers of a day gone by, the apostles... Fox's Book of Martyrs, if that was the testimony of American Christianity, we would not see the breadth of error and softness when it comes to the gospel. Thousands of Christians are persecuted around the world, persecuted not just for being Christians, but for their lifestyle of kingdom character, which is what we'll examine today. And folks, I just want to say at the outset, and this, this needs to be thought on often, persecution is not something that other people go through. Some of you may get Voice of the Martyrs magazine. I've gotten that in the past. I read their website occasionally just to keep myself aware of what's happening around the world. But one of the dangers of reading a magazine like Voice of the Martyrs or Fox's Book of Martyrs or any other publication that speaks of the persecuted church is that it can become something that is somewhere else in a different time with a different group of people. It's not us. It's not today. It's not in this valley, in this state, in this country. That's, that's somewhere else. And kingdom citizens, based on where they're located, will have to suffer persecution. The reality is that that is not the message of what we find in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12 or, as we'll see, through the entirety of our New Testament. Persecution is the anticipation and should be the anticipation of every believer. Every believer. We've walked through these Beatitudes. God has been gracious to us in changing us, in transforming our hearts. We've been encouraged even while we've been convicted of our shortcomings in comparison to the standard set before us. And now we come to this final test, this final examination of our hearts. And this one is particularly tough for
for the American Christian. This examination, as we lay our hearts again before God's Word, will be very difficult for us as Americans. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. So let's take our hearts, let's open them, and let's come to this final beatitude and examine what God has revealed to us through the preaching of Christ as recorded by Matthew under the inspiration of the Spirit. We're going to look at this in two different sections. And unlike the other Beatitudes, Jesus takes this one and he further explains it. He he takes us a little bit deeper in verses 11 and 12, which is unique. We haven't had that opportunity yet. So we're going to look at this in two different sections. The first section is kingdom persecution assigned. And we're going to look at the assignment of this kingdom persecution. Defined, articulated, explained to us. And then in verses 11 and 12, we're going to look at it applied. Kingdom persecution applied to our lives personally. And that's really what Jesus does. Verse 10 is the broad statement of fact. Verse 11 and 12 really represent a personal application of that statement. So let's begin with the kingdom persecution assigned to us. And let's begin like we have with every one of these Beatitudes re-examining and being reminded of the words that are before us on the page. First word in the Beatitude is blessed. Blessed. Not superficial happiness, not surface level joy, not sinful pleasure that's for a season, but internal and eternal joy of the most true and deep sense is promised exclusively to those who are in the kingdom. And those who are in the kingdom are described with this characteristic of life. Here is the character of their being. They are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's a key. And the promise that accompanies their persecution is their inheritance, their gaining of the kingdom of heaven. Let's take just a second, and I want to read to you and think through with you rightly about what this kingdom persecution looks like. And I'm going to do that by going to the negative. What is not promised here as we look at kingdom persecution? How could we misunderstand this? Well, no blessing is promised for persecution in general. Okay, Just because life is difficult, because someone has taken upon themselves to attack you, to persecute you, that does not promise in a general sense blessing or bring any satisfaction or any comfort in the examination of our lives as kingdom citizens, or those who claim to be kingdom citizens. No blessing is promised for those who are persecuted for their favorite cause. And this is really something that strikes home at this time of year. We are Christians, and by birth, we are Americans. And in our culture right now, the blurring of those lines gets very, very easy to fall into. And so political causes are at the forefront. And to be persecuted for a political cause is not parallel, it is not synonymous, nor does it promise blessing like being persecuted for righteousness' sake, which we're going to look at in just a moment. So just because you have a cause that you live for, just because you have a cause that you stand for, does not mean that you have blessing in those who persecute you. 
Thirdly, there is no blessing promised for persecution for obnoxious behavior. Okay? Maybe you've seen a video of an evangelist out on the street and goes up to some perfect stranger who has never seen this person in their life and jams a microphone in front of them and starts into a grilling of this person. The stranger, for no reason, plays along. And before long, the evangelist is badgering this person, trying to back them into a logical corner so that they can pounce on them and beat them down with the gospel. And when that person, the stranger, smacks the microphone out of their face and says, I'm out of here, hits the camera guy on the way by, and leaves, the camera flashes back to the evangelist, and you might hear, hey, blessed are the persecuted. Well, this beatitude does not promise blessing for yours or for my obnoxious behavior or for our objectionable behavior with others. Okay? Just because you're a Christian does not mean that every time you are persecuted for being objectionable and obnoxious, that you somehow can grant yourself blessing because of this beatitude. No blessing is promised for persecution for unwise decisions that you may make or that I may make. Instead, on the positive side, blessing here is promised and kingdom blessing is promised for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's a great translation. It means on the account of righteousness. So this persecution is very specific. It is persecution that is derived solely from your life being one that is pursuing righteousness. You say, well, what does that look like? When will I know if I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, we're grateful that we're not left to answer that of our own wisdom. Look down at verse 11. Jesus articulates what it is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says... The end of verse 11, blessed are you when you are persecuted in these different descriptions. On what account? On my account. So blessing is promised to those who are persecuted for Christ-likeness in their lives. For those who are living righteousness, ethical righteousness before a lost world. So, kingdom persecution is something that can be stamped on on every true believer, but it is not something that can be stamped on every persecution that you encounter. Is that clear? You can't just have difficult circumstances in life and think that every single event of your life that is negative is another opportunity or another expression of persecution. This is very specific. The blessing here is promised to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, this righteousness' sake that drives us is what we found in verse 6. It is our hunger, it is our thirst, and the persecution that comes from it is to be an assumed reality. I don't know how much we've thought about this recently, but flip over with me to the Gospel of John, John's account in chapter 15. Let me read to you the words of our Lord, John 15. John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, know this. Here's what you need to know if the world hates you. 
it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus speaking. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay? This is assumed reality. The implications are very difficult to deal with. Remember, the word that I said to you, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. They would believe you, is the idea. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the assumption from Jesus to those who would follow him was that the world would hate them and that persecution would follow them. It was an assumed reality. This isn't isolated. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, who is struggling with the persecution that he is enduring from false teachers in the church at Ephesus. Paul encourages him. He says in verse 10, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All includes all those who desire to live a godly life in the United States of America, in the state of California, in the San Joaquin Valley, in a little gathering at Grace Church. All. While evil people and imposters, verse 13 says, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Christ speaks this word to us. Timothy receives this word from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter gives us this same idea in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Why? Why should we have no fear of persecution and not be concerned or troubled by persecution for righteousness' sake? Well, Peter was sitting there in Matthew 5. Don't forget that. He was there. He was sitting right there on the mountain, or standing right on the mountain near the Lord Jesus as he taught. And look at what he tells us in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter further articulates for us what the righteousness that is to be the basis of our persecution is we are slandered we are reviled but it is for our good behavior in christ it is for christ likeness then he says in verse 18 for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The idea here is, in the context of what Peter has just said, not only are we to be encouraged by the opportunity that persecution brings for a declaration of the hope that's within us, but we also ought to understand that the reviling that is done in Christ will ultimately come to an end and they will be put to shame. And then thirdly, we should look to our Savior himself who suffered the ultimate persecution as a righteous man. Then finally, the Apostle John writes in 1 John, and you can listen as I read in 1 John chapter 3, the examination of the one who claims to be a Christian. Verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Verse 13. Don't be surprised. We should not be baffled that the world persecutes the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom persecution is the assumed reality for all who find themselves citizens by new birth of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are the implications of this assumption that we find in Matthew chapter 5? Well, the implications are for us to ask ourselves the very difficult question. When was the last time that the world was so confronted with the person of Christ in my life that they expressed their hatred and persecuted me for my righteousness sake. When was the last time that the world saw clearly enough through my life, the person and work of Christ, that they hated me for it? Not hated me because I jammed a microphone in their face, not hated me because I berated them, not hated me because I ripped them off in a business deal, or I got so angry at someone that they lashed out at me. But when was the last time that they saw Christ clearly portrayed in my life to the point where their hatred for Him was expressed to me? That's a convicting thought, isn't it? Because the answer to that question really relays to us the level at which the world is accurately seeing Christ lived out in us. You see, the, the Beatitudes are still concerned about your heart. They're still concerned about the inside being lived out on the outside. They're still concerned that the one who has been transformed, the one who has been changed, the one who has been humbled and follows Christ as Lord, as King of the Kingdom, they're still concerned that that should be seen then in the fruit of life. And the fruit of the righteous life will be persecution. Folks, often I think we put ourselves in the non-persecuted category and we really give ourselves a lot of credit that we're not persecuted because we live in a free country where religious freedom is allowed. The reality is we're over here. We're not persecuted because we're not bold enough to speak the truth and our lives are not lived in such a way that they pursue righteousness with such a passion that the world hates the very character that they see in us 
and they despise the one that we follow. This is the kingdom persecution. It's assumed. It's to be expected. It's the very nature of the believer. Understand that in all the contexts in which this is guaranteed, whether it be Jesus in his communication to his disciples, whether it be Paul to Timothy at Ephesus, whether it be Peter writing to the churches, or whether it be John writing to an individual in 1 John, all of the context has nothing to do with location. It is not that the believers in Ephesus should be expected, or should be expecting rather, to be persecuted. It is that all who pursue godliness can have this expectation. And each of them who encounter this expected persecution can lean back on the promise of the beatitude that this will be blessed. And this is confirmation. This is assurance that in fact they are kingdom citizens. Kingdom persecution, we don't have time this morning to look at this in detail, but it has a long history from our scriptures. We go back to Abel, the first person to be murdered by his brother Cain. Abel was killed because his sacrifice before God was accepted by God. He was righteous. Cain killed him. Joseph came speaking from the word of God, revealed to him in dreams, speaking the truth to his brothers, and he was persecuted for that reality. He was sold. He was made a slave. He was imprisoned wrongly for his righteousness. You remember he fled from Potiphar's wife. And what was her persecution to him? It was to slander him, to revile him, to bear false witness about him, which then led to him being further persecuted with prison. Moses, throughout the Exodus account, we see Moses being persecuted as the one who spoke for God, the one who communed with God, the people constantly griping, constantly slandering Moses. Probably the most famous account, Daniel and his friends sold into or ushered into captivity. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. Why? Because he was faithful to enter into prayer before God. And those who hated God and hated Daniel as an expression of his allegiance to God made a law that made it so that they could kill anyone who lived out their faith in Yahweh God. Same for Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. Elijah, Jezebel came after Elijah with everything she had. All the prophets were persecuted. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Nehemiah. John the Baptist was imprisoned because he spoke the truth. He was righteous. He betrayed the truth to the king. Ultimately, he was beheaded for his righteousness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in perfection, lived righteousness. He is the very image of the Father. His nature is stamped, an exact imprint. He is God of very gods, and He was killed. He was murdered on a cross. He was persecuted at the highest level. 
Listen to this, the apostles who were being persecuted in the early church, Christ has gone to heaven, he has ascended. The apostles are suffering, and listen to their response to their suffering. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, who had beaten them, who would imprison them, who would persecute them in every way for the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. They left the council, and what was their response? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Kingdom persecution has a long line of famous people. It's got a long history. There's a hall of fame for the persecution of those within the kingdom. And it's to be expected in our lives. Now, what is the promise for this kingdom persecution? The promise is that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the bookends, right? This was the first one. This is the last promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the present reality of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right here, right now, this isn't future. It will have a future aspect. But right now, theirs is the kingdom. These people are the ones who are true and genuine citizens. This isn't false ID. This isn't a false passport. These are genuine, proven citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And their persecution for their righteousness proves it. That's their promise. That's their hope. That's their blessing. So that's the assignment of the kingdom persecution. Let's look finally then at the last two verses quickly. At kingdom persecution applied. Christ turns the corner now and he focuses. And many believe that, excuse me, he's focusing now on his disciples. He's spoken this beatitude. And at the conclusion of this section, he turns now and very personally, potentially he looks at the disciples or he speaks specifically to those who were in fact genuine followers of Christ. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And I echo from the word of God, blessed are you. Personally, you have a blessing, a divine blessing when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on his account, on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's personal, and it's further defined for us as well. Look at these aspects of the persecution as revealed in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. We don't use the word revile often. I don't know how many of you lately have told your children not to revile each other. If I hear you reviling your sister again, you're going to go to your room. So what does revile mean? Revile means throwing insults. It literally means, if we go back to its root meaning, it really means to throw it in the teeth. It means to throw something, to slam it in the face of the person. It is an insult that is cast in the face of another person. So what does this persecution look like from the term revile you? Well, it is verbal. It is verbal. There is an aspect of the persecution that comes for the account of Christ and on the sake, or for the sake of righteousness that is verbal. It is casting an insult in your face. Persecute you so commonly used, and yet we don't think about what persecute means. The root of that is to harass or to chase someone. 
You are hounded for your righteousness. You are hounded for Christ's account. And then finally is slander, utter all kinds of evil. And there is a key word here, utter all kinds of evil falsely. Okay, that's an important word in this description or further description of the Beatitudes. Right? There are those who utter evil about you, and it's true. We need to be humble enough to accept that, to go in humility and confess that to them. There are others who will utter evil against you falsely for the sake of Christ. And this has been the heritage of those who have followed Christ from the very beginning. So there is a verbal aspect that is very real. There is a hounding and chasing and harassing, and there is a slander, a lying, a false witness behind your back that is spread about you falsely on the account of Christ. It's as limited in its blessing as it is to its cause. The cause for this persecution is on the account of Christ, and understand again that no blessing is promised apart from persecution for the sake of Christ. It's identification with Jesus so purely lived out and so purely spoken that the world cannot tolerate. We live in a society that champions tolerance. It's like the ultimate buzzword. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. The only intolerance that is allowed or tolerated is intolerance towards those who are intolerant. And so if you have the guts to speak the truth, that I am the way, Christ says, the truth and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by Him. And you live in such a way that in humility you portray the very righteousness of Christ. You are proclaiming by your life and by your word an exclusive gospel, an exclusive good news. Christ is the only way. He is the only one that I pursue. He is the only one that I follow and I desire more than anything else in my life and the world cannot tolerate it. They hate him. They killed him. They would kill him again today. And they will persecute all those who bear his name. So kingdom persecution is expected, but finally as it's applied here in verses 11 and 12, it comes with a commanded response. There's actually a command involved with persecution. And this is hard for us, folks. This, don't, don't get me wrong. I do not like being persecuted. I don't like being reviled. I don't enjoy it. I don't, no one in their right mind enjoys being slandered. No one enjoys being harassed. But when it comes to being slandered, harassed, reviled for the sake of Christ and righteousness... This must be our internal response. As difficult as it may be, we should rejoice and be glad. Why? Why could we have joy and gladness in the midst of persecution? Why, when someone slanders us, could we have joy and gladness in light of somebody lying about us? Everything inside of us is screaming for defense of our character. And yet the biblical command is that we rejoice and be glad for these two reasons. Here are the two things that guide us. One is past and one is future. The first is that our reward in heaven will be great. This persecution is not going unnoticed. Our gracious Father is seeing every part of this event. And I take joy and I am glad. 
because I know that he will reward this as an opportunity to bring glory to his name. That's the future aspect that will fuel rejoicing and gladness in the face of persecution. But there's a past. There's a past aspect as well. And the past aspect is given at the end of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wrote down these two things in my notes. Why? Because of the great reward that is coming and because of the great company that is in the past. Persecution, whether it's physical, verbal, whether it leads to martyrdom, or whether it is your next-door neighbor speaking harshly to you, calling you names or slandering you, whatever the case may be, it puts you into a grouping of people that ought to comfort and bring joy to your life. Who better to associate with than the prophets of old who were persecuted for proclaiming the truth of God? Count me in. Count me in. I want to be a part. I don't chase persecution. I don't like it. I don't go around looking for it. But when righteousness is played out in my life by the grace of God, when the character of our Lord is seen in my expression, day-to-day life, through my attitude, through my words, whatever it may be, when the gospel is clearly spoken to those who are in sin and hardened towards it, then when persecution comes, we can find joy and gladness. The future holds great reward for those who are persecuted. The past holds great company, great comfort for those who are persecuted. And the present reality is we are the the possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom persecution is assigned to all kingdom citizens and it guarantees blessings for all who endure and persevere. Look forward just a couple pages, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is speaking again, the same issue. He's sending out his 12 apostles to preach the gospel, to declare to the cities and the villages that the Messiah has arrived. And he says in verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So God will use your persecution for the testimony. Look at verse 21. Brothers will deliver brothers over to death. This will divide families. And the father, his child, even parental unity will be broken. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then look at this last sentence in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And what does that mean? Does that mean that our endurance is the basis upon which we can know that we're going to be saved? Is it that if we just work hard enough to endure, we'll in the end merit our salvation? Absolutely not, right? Otherwise, we need to rip major portions of our New Testament out. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What Jesus says here is that your confidence can be secure as you endure persecution. It is affirming that the future salvation of your soul is intact. You will be saved in the end. All who persevere will be saved. That will be the end result. Those who fall away are revealing that they have never come to faith in Christ and they will not be saved. 
in eternity future. So, it is to be expected. It comes with great promise. What's the concluding thought here from the words of our Lord in this beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wrote down these ideas at the very beginning of my study this week in my notebook. Kingdom persecution is blessed. Kingdom persecution is expected. Kingdom persecution is rooted in righteousness. Kingdom persecution is rooted in Christ-likeness. Kingdom persecution is both physical and verbal. Kingdom persecution is personal. Kingdom persecution is historical. And kingdom persecution ends with an inheritance of the kingdom. And finally, this statement, kingdom persecution marks the members of the kingdom. We've come to the conclusion of one of the most intense examination passages that we'll find in our New Testament. It's intense. We've come to the end of a section where our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, the king of this kingdom, outlines for us the truth statements, the character of those who are in the kingdom. And he has left us with a pit in our stomach with the final beatitude. Persecution is the mark. It is the stamp that will accompany those who live out the righteousness and Christ-likeness to which they have been saved. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been saved for good works We have been saved for the purpose of living out the character of God to the world around us. What's the bright spot? The bright spot is, is as we live, those who are being saved will come to faith through our testimony and through the life lived in Christ's likeness. There will be those who come to faith in Christ. There will be those who will be saved and who will, who will see the person of Christ in all of his beauty as portrayed in those whom he has saved. But the majority are found in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 10. The majority will persecute. The majority will hate. Those who are hardened in their sin will despise the words of Christ, the good news about Christ, and the expressions of the character of Christ in the life of those who follow him. Take heart. This is to be your expectation, and it will be accompanied with the grace needed to be rejoicing and glad in persecution. God will not leave you to muster up the ability to be glad and to rejoice and to see eternity in your persecution any more than he left you to muster up enough faith to come to him in salvation. He saved you by grace, and he will sanctify you by grace. He will grow you by grace, even in the face of kingdom persecution.